everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendrick. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focus and security policy and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. All right, so in the last episode I released... I started taking on the griping about President Biden coming from both outside and inside the tent, as represented almost perfectly in an interview in the New York Times by former Housing and Urban Development Secretary and failed presidential candidate Julian Castro. That ended up looking like it was going to be longer than I can reasonably ask people to listen to in the form of one episode, so I decided to break it up into two. That is to say, if you haven't yet listened to episode 41 of this podcast... Pause this right now uh, and go listen to that one before listening to this. All done? Great. So, I took a bit longer than I initially intended to record the second part of this episode. My immune system is apparently on strike. Again. Let's see if my throat works well enough to get all the way through this. Uh, but so then, here goes the second part of my pushback on a couple of different anti-Biden arguments. That's to say, the combination of what I hear in the form of bitching and moaning from some parts of the left dreaming of another candidate, incoherent agitation from the right that Joe Biden is somehow both a doddering old fool with dementia and also an evil genius bent on converting the United States into some sort of nightmare version of the TV show Portlandia set in Maduro's Venezuela, and non-Americans who are understandably, but I argue incorrectly, skeptical of Biden's age and relative lack of charisma based, I think, on being not fully aware of both the backstory behind those things and of just how much he's accomplished in just a few short years as president. I should just say, before I circle back to take on the next part of Julian Castro's argument that I began digging into in the first part of this episode, it does feel a little absurd to be rebutting arguments about Biden being a weak man and a mediocre president right now on a day that started with him headlining a summit that shows off how he managed to add a second new country to NATO, a military and diplomatic alliance that he has massively revitalized and which is now stronger than it has ever been, largely due to his efforts. But to get back to the Castro interview along with a couple of other things that I dug into in the first part that triggered me to do this episode... The third argument that Julian Castro makes in that New York Times podcast episode that I want to take a swing at here is his slanderous dis uh, diminishment of what Biden has managed to get done as president in the face of an almost unprecedented level of adversity. Certainly no president has had to deal with this many problems, at least since Roosevelt, and for the record, Biden's had to do it with far less of a political advantage than Roosevelt ever had. But, okay, here, I'll let Castro speak for himself. I'll say that Joe Biden... I don't think it's fair to say that he doesn't drive any of that. I think what he has this time is the accomplishments under his belt, uh -huh. which are impressive, a number of his accomplishments. All right, sounds okay so far. But wait, there's more. But is it a Barack Obama? Uh -huh. You know, is it Bill Clinton? Uh, no, it's not. Okay, again, bullshit. Castro's premise here is basically Biden won the first time because people hated Trump, so they voted for the alternative. Yeah, Biden has been so bad, but his accomplishments aren't that impressive and certainly won't be enough to make people want to vote for him this time. Yeah, maybe that's because Castro and others like him are out there on the stump constantly poo-pooing what's been achieved in the first two and a half years of Biden's presidency. And what are some of those accomplishments? Well, 
About two months ago, I did an episode where I addressed a couple of topics, starting with the epic fall of Kremlin spokesperson and professional immigrant basher Tucker Carlson over at Fox, and continuing into an extensive, if not comprehensive, recitation of some of the good things Biden's gotten done on the event of his announcement that he's running for a second term. Now, I'll skip that level of detail here and suggest that anyone who hasn't yet go listen to episode 38 of the show. Sorry for telling you that. Right on the heels of also telling you to listen to the episode right before this one, but seriously, go listen to episode 38. It's a good one, and if you don't think so, at least it's a solid background noise for some household chores. But without, I promise, going into quite as much detail here, just to recap some of the things that Biden has managed to pull off as president, you know, despite having taken over in the midst of a pandemic just after an attempted auto-coup by a president who basically torched America standing internationally at a time when our alliances mattered more than perhaps any other time in American history. <laughs> and also, of course, despite Biden being old and frail and feeble-minded and having dementia and falling off a bike that one time, Biden, in his first term, managed to get huge portions of the population vaccinated against the aforementioned pandemic, massively reduced the cost of insulin and expanded health care coverage more generally in the United States. He got the biggest investment in America's infrastructure since the 1950s, along with massive investments in green energy, electric vehicle infrastructure, and high-tech manufacturing. He's expanded electricity and high-speed internet to rural and often neglected parts of the country. He cut child poverty by more than half in his first year in office. Unemployment has reached historic lows as 13 million jobs have been created under Biden's economy just again in the first two and a half years of him being in office. Inflation, which has been high everywhere, sparked by the, tent by the pandemic, also appears to be coming under control. He also signed formal protections for gay marriage into law and at least made some bipartisan progress on gun safety, the first real legislation on that in a generation. On the international front, he's restored America's reputation, presided over two new countries joining NATO, as I mentioned at the top, countries whose militaries, by the way, will definitely be helpful to the alliance, strengthened America's connection to various other strategic partners, rejoined various international institutions like the Paris Climate Accords and the World Health Organization. Yes, Donald Trump re legitimately thought it would be a good idea to pull the U.S. out of the WHO in the middle of a pandemic. And I haven't even mentioned just how expertly doddering, frail, confused, forgot-to-wear-pants old Uncle Joe has managed to navigate the extremely complex web of alliances, interests, and factors involved in leading the charge to help Ukraine defend its sovereignty. Rather than going into detail, I'll just say, if you haven't yet, and my stats show that for some reason a below-average number of people have, go listen to episode 33 of this show which came out on the one year anniversary of the latest russian invasion and looks into more into that in more detail so to tie it back to castro's absurd premise that biden really has been basically mediocre especially when compared to presidents like obama or clinton no sorry love both those guys and both were excellent presidents obama was great whatever i may think of him having allowed bad advisors <coughs> and roads <coughs> there's that throat acting up again, to lead him to completely bungle the response to the Syrian civil war. And yes, Bill Clinton was also an excellent president. Whatever anyone else may think of the whole, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, uh, Miss Lewinsky, saga, and Clinton's general failure to keep it in his pants. They were both great. But neither man came close to achieving as much as president as Joe Biden has. No president since 1968, possibly even since 1944, has been this good at presidenting, which feels particularly good, considering that Biden is underestimated everywhere and always. 
Okay, so then if that's the case, I'm here claiming Biden has really been that good. One might reasonably ask me, but Oliver, okay, if that's true, then why the low poll numbers? Why does he continue to be underestimated? Why isn't he getting more credit? Well, I see a combination of factors. The first is just the degree to which American politics have become polarized. The Democratic Party is definitely to the left of where it once was. Probably about half of Democratic voters are to the left of where Biden himself is. And that half of Democrats, as I'll get into in a bit, tend to be less likely to just fall in line and support their guy than Republicans tend to be in a similar position. Now, Republicans, for their part, I'm sorry, are just crazy now. I mean, I could be nice here and put in some qualifier like at least many of the ones in elected office are crazy, but polls show that a lot of average Republican voters are just divorced from reality. I mean, look no further than the fact that a plurality, if not a majority of them, are ready to return to office a guy who, after being responsible for a variety of offenses as president, ranging from putting kids in cages to the negligent homicide of hundreds of thousands of Americans through tragically mishandling the coronavirus pandemic, then went on to instigate a failed coup attempt against American democracy, and then steal highly classified secrets about America's nuclear program and hide them in the bathroom at his country club. Polls have shown for a long time that despite all that and much more, about half of them still say, yeah, that's our guy. And the remaining half, about half of them, support a guy whose main calling card has recently been to attack Trump for not being anti-gay enough, and previously to spend most of his time as governor of Florida using the powers of that state to attack corporations for making statements he disagrees with, make it harder to vote, and make life difficult for teachers who might accidentally recognize in the classroom the existence of non-straight people or the fact that, yeah, slavery and Jim Crow happened. To my assertion, then, that a lot of Republicans are crazy, Biden himself likes to say of modern Republicans, this isn't your father's Republican Party. But despite how batshit many in the Republican caucus are, Biden has actually managed to get more substantial bipartisan legislation passed than any other president in like a generation. Everybody says that his hope that a deal could be made on various things was naive and ridiculous, and that doesn't work anymore, Grandpa. Hell, my last episode before part one of this very podcast was me doubting his ability to save the U.S. and global economy from collapse by reaching an accord with Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But damned if he didn't turn around and make it happen. Related to that last episode, I still think we should seek a judicial end to the debt ceiling, but I will leave that to the last episode. Infrastructure, huge investment in the semiconductor industry, even modest gun safety reform, all passed with bipartisan support. Those who pay a lot of attention to American politics may remember quote-unquote infrastructure week under the Trump administration as a running joke. Under Biden, it's a reality. Despite corralling bipartisan support for some legislation and despite Biden really not being a particularly scary political figure, I mean, he's a relative moderate older white guy who has a multi-decade reputation for being a cross-party dealmaker and the friendliest person you've ever met. But as I mentioned, Things are really polarized right now, in a way that they haven't been in America probably since the Civil War. And this makes it virtually impossible that any president in Biden's position right now would be polling at 60%. Americans live in a reality where about 40% of the country has been hardwired through the hard efforts of Fox TV and the Banana Republican Party's other propaganda arms, and some particularly nasty corners of the internet helped along by Russian information warfare on social media, 
About 40% of the country is programmed to wish a painful death upon anyone with a D next to their name. Biden will get no credit from the other side, which, again, makes it hard to imagine any president right now polling way over 50%. So besides polarization, another factor in what appears to be Biden's rather weak support, as I often bitch about on this show, Democratic voters always seem to get way more excited over young, charismatic, in some way inspirational or history-making individual candidates than they do about a set of policy issues that party members claim to care about. This is ironic, since Democrats like to think of ourselves as better on policy than Republicans, who push an incoherent policy agenda geared largely at defending the wealthy and convincing average people to vote against their own economic interests out of fear or cultural resentment. Now, this focus on exciting presidential candidates rather than the broader goal of furthering the party's issue platform and power is one of the reasons that Democrats often show up to vote in presidential elections and then stay home two years later and, as a result, get crushed in the midterms. I also think that, either tied into what I just said or maybe actually as a factor unto itself, Democrats suck at the expectations game. I've now lived in several countries that have certain things that a lot of Americans, certainly Democrats, would probably like to see enacted in the U.S. to some degree. Things like universal high-quality free health care, a tax system that isn't so comparatively favorable to the rich, a, <laughs> let's say, healthier relationship to firearms. But the U.S. political system is much more complicated and harder to get thing big things done in than almost any other developed democracy, something which a lot of average Americans aren't actually aware of, so it's easy to see why some voters end up disillusioned when the soaring rhetoric of a presidential campaign meets with the hard reality of trying to govern in our system and inevitably only like a third of the agenda actually ends up getting enacted. This is made even worse by a version of the thing I've just mentioned, the tendency of Democratic voters to fall in love with individual candidates rather than the party as a whole. And it's especially damaging when candidates come along who, whether deliberately misleading them or not, cause a chunk of voters to believe that the mere election, one time, of this one single person to the presidency will result in the immediate and comprehensive implementation of a sweeping policy agenda that they support. I know it sounds like I'm talking about Trump. I alone can fix it, right? <laughs> and yes, that actually sort of applies, but not really in the way that I mean, because Trump rarely had a clear policy agenda. Some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. I can hear you grumbling, and okay, come tweet at me. But if you really think that Bernie Sanders running two presidential campaigns in which he, again, intentionally or not, allowed voters who aren't super familiar with how a bill becomes a law in the United States to believe that he alone could turn America into a Western European-style social democracy overnight, didn't throw fuel on the fire of this perfect-as-the-enemy-of-the-good nonsense that Biden's having to deal with now, you're crazy. To anyone who didn't get that reference there, sorry for getting so far into the weeds. My point basically is this. Democrats suck at managing expectations. Democratic voters, first among them Julian Castro it would seem, have been trained to expect candidates who are either extremely personally exciting or candidates who ran on a very aspirational policy agenda. And Biden does not conform to those expectations. Now, Democrats who did get elected that way they haven't been bad presidents. Obama, Clinton, Carter, Kennedy were mostly good at the job, I think. But I would argue that the presidents who achieved the most substantial and lasting liberal progress in American politics 
haven't been the ones who presented as charismatic young changemakers. I just hope that this liberal president doesn't suffer the same fate as, say, Lyndon Johnson, the last Democrat who diverged from the mold of charismatic young change-making candidate and then went on to become one of the most effective presidents in American history. Johnson, of course, is often remembered for having failed to fix or end an unpopular and tragically mismanaged war that, realistically, was kind of dumped on him by his predecessors, and then was abandoned by many people in his own party who had apparently failed to notice that despite being a boring, uncharismatic old centrist, he had shepherded through more legal progress on civil rights in a few years than had been made in a century, created Medicare and Medicaid, and built a whole bunch more of the social safety net. That is, at least until Ronald Reagan tore up a bunch of it two decades later. Johnson was tragically underappreciated at the time of his presidency. But in a little more than one term, he presided over the end of an active and aggressive legal regime that existed in southern states for about a century to control and oppress racial minorities, and built a set of social programs that would eventually lead to poverty in America being cut in half. What might he have done with a second term, were it not effectively denied him by stupid infighting and division within the Democratic Party driven by the personal ambition of some and the insistence on ideological purity of others? Tragically, we'll never know. But let's not make that same stupid-ass mistake we made with Lyndon Johnson by turning on Joe Biden, okay? I'll refer back to episode 41, part one of this episode. Again, if you haven't listened to part one of this episode yet, go do it. Trust me, this one will make a whole lot more sense with the context. So to refer back to the part of that episode where I was talking about the ridiculous notion that there should be a more active Democratic primary race in 2024 because apparently some Democratic voters find Joe Biden insufficiently exciting, there were only two real one-term Democratic presidents of the 20th century. I would argue that since Truman took over for Roosevelt almost immediately after their term started, he doesn't really count since he almost got two full terms. And as John F. Kennedy didn't get one full term and wasn't really able to be seriously considered for re-election since tragically he was assassinated, he also wouldn't count. Okay, so it's a little muddy. But basically, there were only two one-term Democratic presidents in the 20th century. And besides Southern accents, those two one-termers had another thing in common. Both Lyndon Johnson in 1968 and Jimmy Carter in 1980 faced serious competition for their second Democratic nomination. Funnily enough, both involving Kennedys. I don't think the same could really be said for any other incumbent Democratic president since the modern primary system came into being. Now, I'm not saying that the only reason Lyndon Johnson and Jimmy Carter were the only Democrats in the last century who only got one term can only be attributed to the fact that they were also the only ones who faced stiff primary challenges, <laughs> but that's a hell of a coincidence. People like Julian Castro, who are calling to quote-unquote open up the Democratic primary, or continuing to publicly hold out hope that some other serious candidate, that's to say, not one of the two current wackadoodles, <laughs> including another Kennedy, will step up and challenge Biden, have either forgotten or believe they are exempt from basic political history. Either that, or for some reason they want the red team, let's face it, probably in the form of Donald Trump, back in the White House. That would, anyway, certainly explain why Steve Bannon, the extreme-right, semi-fascist, bleary-eyed, scam artist, pile of dirty laundry, who helped engineer Trump's Electoral College victory in 2016, has worked so hard this time to promote Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in his strange bid to primary Joe Biden. I mean, who knows? Maybe Bannon just legitimately wants to help RFK Jr. become president himself so that he can 
you know, rid the world of vaccines, cell phone radiation, and the 5G mind control signals that can penetrate straight through your tinfoil hats and into the blood-brain barrier. Or some shit like that. But my guess is, what's on Bannon's mind in supporting RFK isn't space mind control raves, but rather the elections of 1968 and 1980, and how a primary challenge against Biden might help his old boss back into the presidency. That's it for this two-part episode of OK Talks. Now, I'm going to end this one a bit differently than usual. I say that because the number of listeners to this show had been growing pretty steadily since late last summer when I sort of revived the show after my massive unplanned hiatus. But I've noticed that it has sort of plateaued over the last couple of episodes. Now, if you've made it this far, you probably don't hate the show. So please, I know I always ask this, but please do make sure you're sharing this podcast with other people who might like it. If you're unsure how to do that, Look on your screen right now for a place where there are three horizontal dots. That's how it appears on most platforms anyway. And once you hit that, you'll see a number of options including copy link. Do that, then paste that link uh, to send it to really anybody you think might like the show. I know there's a lot of political content out there, but I think there is something to be said for a show that can address both inside baseball of American politics from an outside perspective, and also things happening in the rest of the world. I hope you do too, and if you do, thank you. And also, please, please do spread it around. This is how we grow and keep the show going, so thanks for that and for listening. Oh, and of course, you know, thanks as always to Nate for the podcast artwork. Till next time.